Please open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 13. Be covering chapters 13 and 14, just 75 verses, a bit more than I have time for this morning, but we'll get through as much as we can. What are you counting on? That's my main question for you this morning. It's what I want you to leave with asking honestly, introspectively, prayerfully, what are you counting on? It's one way of asking the question, what are you trusting in? And fundamentally, what are you counting on for salvation? Are you trusting in your own works? Are you trusting in the work of God in his son, Jesus Christ? But this question could be pushed further than simply the fundamental question of salvation. We could also ask, what are you counting on for a sense of security? What are you counting on for satisfaction, for significance, for success? And speaking of success, when you think of success, how do you measure success? What metrics do you use to count success? Some count on their money as a measure of success, as a means of finding security and satisfaction and significance. Others maybe do not have as much money in the bank, but they have accomplished quite a lot. Some may count their significance according to the number of friends they have on social media or followers or likes. In the church, we fall into the same type of trap. We are prone to measure success by nickels and noses. I encounter pastors throughout the city. This next week, we'll host a pastor's conference, a preaching workshop here at First Free, and in, undoubtedly, people will ask questions like, how many people attend your church? What is your budget? But is this the way the Lord counts? Is this the way that the Lord measures success? In our passage this morning, we find King Saul counting on three different occasions. You can see them there. If you look in chapter 13, verse 2, he selects 3,000 men to serve in his army. But then he's outnumbered by the Philistines who have 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops. This terrifies Israel, and so they start to scatter. So the second time he takes account, in verse 15, there are only 600 men remaining with him. Later, in chapter 14, verse 17, he says again, count and see who has gone from us. He is very interested in taking count of the number of his troops. Chapter 12 taught us that a human king could be successful if he counted on the Lord. And 
his trust in the Lord would be proven not just to say you trust in the Lord, that you count on the Lord, but counting on the Lord would be proven through keeping God's commands. If the people of Israel would keep the Lord's commands and the king would keep the Lord's commands, we are told in verse 14 of chapter 12, it will be well. But if you will not keep the commands of the Lord, the Lord's hand will be against you and you and your king will be swept away. The conditions for kingship were set out very clearly in chapter 12. And so as we turn our attention to chapter 13, we are wondering, will Saul count on the Lord? Will Saul keep the Lord's commands? Or more to the point, what will he do when things get tough? That's the real measure of our faithfulness, isn't it? What do you do when you're up against all odds? Do you keep the Lord's commands then? Do you count on the Lord then? Or when the pressure really mounts, do you start counting your troops? Counting your chips? And abandoning the command of the Lord. That's the question before us this morning. There are two main characters in our passage. Saul, the king, and his son, Jonathan. These two characters present two ways to live. The way of the fool and the way of the faithful. One trusts in his own strength and leans on his own understanding. The other trusts in the Lord and leans not on his own understanding. The story is really a tragedy. Spoiler alert. Saul, the king, is the fool. His son is the faithful, faithful one. Saul acts like a king like the nations. Jonathan acts like the king that the people need, but because of Saul's folly, Jonathan will never serve as king. The passage, as I see it, is divided into three parts, each beginning with the counting of the troops. So the first part, gives us a portrait of Saul's folly, the wrong way to count. The second part, a portrait of faithfulness in Jonathan, the right way to count. And then the final part, another portrait of foolishness, which also shows the tragic consequences of that. Let's begin with the first part in chapter 13, verses 1 to 5. And I would ask for you to stand for the reading of God's word. Not 1 to 5, 1 to 15. Saul was, or Saul lived for one year, and 
then became king, and when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was, that was at Gibeah, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all of the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it and said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand of the seashore in multitude. They came up against, they came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. And when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad in Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord so I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Our passage teaches us that those who count on the Lord will be saved. But these verses show us that Saul does not count on the Lord. Instead, he acts like a fool. And the fool, this is the lesson, takes matters into his own hands and disobeys the Lord's commands. Takes matters into his own hands and disobeys the Lord's commands. 
In order to understand these verses, we need to remember the context that Lucas taught from a couple of weeks ago. After Saul was anointed by Samuel, this is in chapter 10, Samuel gave him instructions from the Lord. They're recorded in verses 5 to 8 of chapter 10. Very clear. He told Saul, you shall come to Gibeah, or to Gibeath as it's called here, Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you. You will prophesy. You'll be turned into another man. Now, when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I'm coming down to you, to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When it says there in chapter 10, do what your hand finds to do for God is with you. Most scholars believe that this means Saul was supposed to attack the garrison of the soldiers, the Philistine soldiers, at Gibeah. What Samuel had promised has happened. The Spirit has come upon Saul. He prophesied. But as we come to chapter 13, he hasn't yet attacked the garrison as he was commanded to do. He hasn't obeyed. However, in verse 3, we're told that his son Jonathan attacked the garrison. And this attack on the garrison has its intended effect. It makes the Philistines really mad. They become like, the Israelites become like my teenage boys after soccer practice. They are a stench to the Philistines. So they gather together an army ten times the number of Israel's army. Israel is in deep trouble. As verse 6 tells us, they are hard-pressed. And what do they do when they find themselves in trouble? Do they exhibit faith in God's promises that He has made very clear? Or fear? Verses 6 to 7 make it quite clear. All of Israel is shaking in their boots. They are outnumbered, and so they run and hide. The soldiers have gone AWOL. But what about Saul? The leader of the people, the king of God's people, certainly he will act differently. He does go down to Gilgal like Samuel commanded him to do. And he does wait for eight days, but he is pacing and sweating and has become so antsy. You ever relate to that? That he starts to act out of fear instead of faith. 
He sees the growing numbers of the Philistines, the shrinking numbers of his army, the days on the calendar passing by. And so instead of waiting for Samuel to show, he takes matters into his own hands. Verse 9, he offers the burnt offering. The second the smoke starts to rise from the altar, guess who shows up? Samuel. Samuel approaches Saul like God approached Adam in the garden and says, what have you done? And then Saul, like Adam in the garden, starts to make excuses. He starts to blame. The people, they were scattering. You didn't come. The Philistines, they were coming. So I forced myself. And offered the offering. But Samuel doesn't accept his excuses. Instead, he pronounces God's judgment by, first of all, naming his sin in verse 13. He says, you have done foolishly. Foolishly. Why does he say this? Psalm 14.1 tells us that the fool says in their heart, there is no God. The fool is not an atheist that actually denies the existence of God. They simply say in their heart, there is no God. They're not an atheist, but they live as though God did not exist. He takes matters into his own hands and disobeys the Lord's commands. That's Saul's sin. Next, Samuel lays out the consequences for his sin in verse 14. Remember the context of chapter 12. God told Israel how they could have a human king over them. If they would keep the Lord's command and their king would keep the Lord's command, it would be well But if not, they would be swept away along with their king. Samuel says, because Saul did not keep the Lord's command, his kingdom would not continue. Pastor Mike will deal with where this ultimately ends with Saul next week. But I think here what that means is that his line would not continue. Jonathan would not succeed him as king. Instead, we're told in verse 14, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. Literally, what this verse means is maybe a little different than some of us have come to think. It means the Lord will choose a different king, a king according to God's heart. Not a king like the nations but a king who will submit to God's rule. What was Saul counting on? As he realized that he was outnumbered, he began to count on his own understanding. Somebody had to do something 
in a situation like this. Even if that something meant clearly going against God's express word. What do you do? What do you count on when the numbers are stacked against you? This could apply to a number of situations, but maybe a relevant one right now is the economy. What do you do when the economy is not working in your favor? It tanks, or maybe you lose your job, or things are cut back. I heard about somebody this week that when they were about to lose their business, they decided to go to the casino. That's foolish. I think that fits the definition of folly in this chapter. Maybe when the budget is getting tighter, you take matters into your own hand and tell a lie so that you can make that sale. Or you don't tell the truth on your taxes. Or you decide, maybe more commonly, to borrow money that it's not really clear you will be able to pay back. Or you stop giving instead of waiting for the Lord and living within your means or asking help from your brothers and sisters in Christ as God's Word calls us to do. Or what about churches? that are losing people left and right. We see this happening in our world today. But it's been a perennial problem, hasn't it? The young people aren't coming anymore. And so what do some people do in that situation? They abandon God's prescribed means of grace. They abandon faithful preaching, congregational singing, public prayer, and regular observance of the Lord's Supper. Instead, they take matters into their own hands and do whatever they can do to appeal to the culture or the young people these days. We could enumerate applications. The point is that it's always folly to take matters into your own hands while abandoning the Lord's commands. Jonathan shows us a different way. Jonathan's faithfulness is on display in chapter 14, but the remaining verses of chapter 13, beginning in verse 16, set the stage. In verse 15, Saul is counting soldiers Again, he began with 3,000 soldiers back in verse 2. Now he's down to 600. The Philistines are organizing and they're about to attack. So the trouble is as great as it's ever been. But to make matters worse, we're told in verses 19 to 22 that there were no swords in Israel. So they're outnumbered. And now we learn that they're also outgunned. The stage is set for chapter 14. But bear in mind, as we read 
these verses from chapter 14, that with 600, they still have double the amount that Gideon had when the Lord delivered Israel from the hands of the Midianites. Beginning in verse 1 through verse 15 of chapter 14, this is what we read. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah and Ahitub. Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other, Sinna. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash and the other on the south in front of Gibeah. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that's in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. And if they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand. And this shall be the sign to us. So, both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, Look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him and they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him and that first strike which Jonathan and his armor bearer made killed about 20 men within as it were half a furrow's length of an acre of land and there was a panic in the camp and in the field and among all the people the garrison And even the raiders trembled, the earthquake, and it became a very great panic. Remember what this whole passage is about. Those who count on the Lord will be saved, and Jonathan is counting on the Lord. He is full of faith, and he teaches us that the faithful those who are full of faith, will take God at his word and trust him to work. So instead of taking matters into your own hands and abandoning the Lord's commands, you will take the Lord at his word and trust him 
to do the work. Now, why do I say that Jonathan is taking God at his word? Well, notice what he says to his armor bearer in verse 6. Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. The Lord had made a promise to his people that he would give his people the land of promise and drive out their uncircumcised enemies before them. So when he calls the Philistines the uncircumcised, it's as if he's claiming the promises of Abraham and his descendants, the people of God, the circumcised. He's taking the Lord at his word. But the main thing to notice is what follows in verse 6. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. This is the main verse in our passage. You may put a star by it for next time. It expresses the theme of the whole of these two chapters. While Saul's counting soldiers and counting Philistines, Jonathan's counting on the Lord. Nothing can hinder the Lord, he says, from saving by many or by few. The numbers don't matter according to God's economy and accounting. Saul's afraid and his fear leads him to folly instead of faith. Jonathan is full of faith and it makes him strong and courageous. Not counting on his own strength, but confident in the Lord. Jonathan's looking more like the kind of king that Israel needs than his father. In fact, his words are very similar to the words we find in chapter 17. When the uncircumcised Philistine, as we're told, Goliath, is defying the armies of the living God, what does David say to him? The Lord saves not by sword or spear, For the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands. That's the confidence that this whole book from Hannah's prayer all the way to here is calling us to place our confidence that the Lord saves not by human might but by his own strength. In what follows, it may seem as though Jonathan is being reckless, but he's not. He's measured. He sets up a sign. If the Philistines see him coming out of the rocky crag and say to him, wait till we come to you, then he and his armor bearer will put on the brakes. But if they say, come up to us, then he says, we will go up for the Lord has given them into our hands. The Philistines tell them to come up. They taunt them, and they do. They climb up the crag. They strike down 20 of the garrison. A small number. But the Lord uses it to wreak havoc on this camp. So, whereas at the beginning of chapter 13, we see the Israelites are trembling. Now, at the end of this story, we see the Philistines trembling. Whereas before, Israel was scattering. Now, we see in verse 16, the Philistines are scattering. 
Jonathan was full of faith in what the Lord could do. The Lord came through. This is teaching us the folly of trusting in our own strength, in our own numbers, in our own understanding. We must count on the Lord. Only He can save us from our sins, most importantly. But also it is only He who can satisfy, only He who can give security and the significance that we are looking at or looking for. As we return to Saul, there's something interesting going on. We've seen what Saul does when clearly he's in trouble and his enemies are pressed up against him. But now the Lord has begun to do a work. What will he do when the Lord is granting success? Will he act any differently? Let's turn now to our final section. Notice at the beginning of this section, which is 1417, he's counting again. (laughs) Not a good sign. Saul said to the people who were with him, count and see who has gone up from us. But then in verse 18, we wonder if there's a glimmer of hope. He calls to the priests and asks for the ark of God. I think that's because he intends to inquire of the Lord. But then he learns that the panic in the Philistines camp is growing. Even though they're not fighting, things are continuing to get chaotic in the Philistine camp. And so he says to the priest in verse 19, withdraw your hand. Let us not miss what's happening here. With success in sight, he's finished praying. And again, takes matters into his own hands. As we continue in verses 20 to 23, we see that the Lord saved Israel that day, even though they didn't hardly have to fight. As Saul went into battle, what they found was the Philistines were fighting against each other, which is the Lord fighting for them. But then we get to verse 24. And we get a different perspective on what happened that day. I want you to look at verse 23 first. It says this. So the Lord saved Israel that day. And the battle passed on beyond Beth Haven. But notice in verse 24 it says, And the men of Israel had been hard pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people saying, Cursed! Be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. Verse 24 is a flashback, I believe. It's easy to miss it. What we are being told is what happened earlier that same day before the victorious battle. We are being told what Saul did when he saw the Lord cause a great panic among the Philistines. What happened after he told the priest to stop praying? This is what Saul did. Instead of seeking the help of the Lord, he seized control. And here's the lesson that we learn. It is detrimental to seize control and make unreasonable demands. It's foolish 
another example of folly, but it's also detrimental. There are grave consequences. Saul had laid an oath on the people, preventing them from eating until he was avenged. Why does he do this? I think it's because he's seen a lot of people scattering and running away from him throughout this time. He wants to do everything in his power to prevent that from happening again. It made me think of when I'm working out in the yard with my kids and one of them says or goes inside to go to the bathroom, but then they never come back to work. Has that ever happened to you? I think that's what is on Saul's mind. He's saying, I'm going to prevent this. I'm going to control this situation to keep this from happening. Nobody eats until the battle is over. No bathroom breaks. I don't want to lose any more of my numbers. You will be working overtime until my project is complete. No breaks, no days off, and no time and a half. In the first part of the passage, the people are in trouble because of the Philistines. They're hard-pressed. Now we see that they are hard-pressed and in trouble because of their own king who has laid controlling and unreasonable demands on them. It's detrimental to the people. And not only to the soldiers in general, In a twist of irony, if you're familiar with this passage, the person who ends up breaking Saul's rule is his own son, Jonathan, who's been out acting in faith, strong and courageous, hasn't heard this stupid, unreasonable, foolish demand. So he did What anybody would do, he ate a little bit of honey to rejuvenate his strength. Saul finds out and decides that he will keep his oath and put his own son to death. But the people of Israel won't have it because they see what Saul has to this point failed to see. Look at verse 45. Shall Jonathan die? who has worked this great salvation in Israel, far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. The people saved Jonathan's life. They saw what we all need to see, that those who count on the Lord will be saved. Jonathan had counted on the Lord. He didn't take matters into his own The tragedy of the story is that even though Jonathan did trust in the Lord, and even though Jonathan's life was saved that day, he would never take the throne. His father's disobedience had prevented that from ever taking place. But Jonathan's faithfulness and trust in the Lord are meant to do what I hope they have already done for you this morning. They are meant to give us a picture of the kind of king that we need. And thankfully, God has provided that king. 
a one after his own heart, his own son, Jesus Christ, who trusted God, who obeyed God, and who saves not by might, but through his cross. We need to count on his righteousness in place of our sinfulness. We need to count on his death and resurrection, which is the penalty that we deserve to pay, but he paid for us. He is the king that we need. But as we close, I want to return to Saul's folly in this passage and ask, what do you do when the numbers are stacked against you? What do you count on when things get tough and feel out of control? Or maybe more specifically, when you don't feel safe. Do you count on the Lord who is sovereign and who is in control of all things? Do you count on the Lord who is good and who cares for you? Or in those moments, do you seek to seize control and take matters into your own hands? Do you start playing God? Asserting your authority. Making unreasonable demands on other people to try to make things happen. This is my sin. Of all of my sins, this is the chief and central one. And let me tell you from experience, if you're not already convinced from this story, when we seek to seize control in our own strength, it is detrimental to the people that we love and the people that we lead. God is God. We are not. He is great, and He is good, and so we can count on Him. And if we count on Him, it will be proven in our actions. It will be proven through our trust and our obedience to Him, not taking matters into our own hands, not making unreasonable demands. Trust and obey. That's the basic message of this passage. The conclusion to the passage is a little surprising. Look in verses 47 to 48. We read, When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, Ammonites, Edom, the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. He did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. After two chapters of enumerating Saul's folly and his sin, why does he get this glowing grade card at the end of this chapter? Well, because from one point of view, all of this was true. All of these things did happen on his watch. But does that mean that he was successful? And this is where I want to end today. It depends on how you count. 
If you're measuring the battles won, then I guess he's successful. If you're measuring his trust in the Lord, then in the end, he was an utter failure. So how do you measure success in your life? How do you count? Is it by the accomplishments that everybody sees? The promotions you've had? The grades on your grade card? The trophies on your shelf? Your portfolio? Your friends? Your looks? People will remember that. Or are you counting on God? Is your measure of success based off of your trust in what He has accomplished on your behalf through the work of Christ? And is that proven in your obedience to His commands? What are you counting about? What are you counting on? That's your assignment for this week is to go and to consider that. Let us pray. Father, when we are aware of our weaknesses, aware of the troubles that face us, it's easy to trust in our own strength. I pray you would help us turn our eyes upon your Son and to count on Him. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.